and she prayed, her countenance was no more sad. All right, so it's always good to pray when you are confused and So thank you for coming. So uh, we've been looking at First Timothy. Remember, uh, Brother Chris took us through the big uh, outline, and then he started with chapters 1 and 2. Uh, just to recap what we've done so far, uh, the background behind the book is that uh, Timothy was a young man. Uh, at the time he met Paul, uh, theologians said that he was around 15, 16, and during Paul's first missionary journey. And Timothy had been raised in the tents of God by his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. And so he had a grasp of the scriptures, so you could say that it was easy for Paul to witness to him and then he became a Christian. So later on, Paul went back during the second uh, missionary journey and then he took uh, Timothy along and he left him in Ephesus. So this letter is related to the church in Ephesus. Okay, so Paul, remember, in Acts, spent three years in Ephesus, so the church was quite, let's say, close to his heart. Okay, and so in Acts 20, remember when Paul was leaving, and they went to see the elders went to see him off at the shore. Remember those days they used to travel in ships. They are told Paul took the time to warn the elders that look, the Holy Spirit of God has made you overseers over this church. And so take heed, okay, and preach the gospel. And he warned them that they had to expect the influx of false teachers and false teaching. And so how do you fight false teaching and false teachers? You preach the gospel. You must know the fundamentals of the faith. And in the first century threat is, is real, then what about 21st century? All right? We are all over the place. So you and I have a responsibility to know what we believe and why we believe. All right? Good. <clears throat> so this is the context within which this letter was this letter was written. Now remember also that Paul in this letter was burdened. Okay? And when you are burdened, you pray. Okay? I hope this morning as a believer you are burdened about something. Usually we are burdened about our daily bread and family, and but we should be burdened about the church, okay? And that is why Paul takes the time to talk about the character of Christian leadership. It is not just for the leaders, but every member of the Church of Jesus Christ should be concerned about the gospel and its spread and how the church is run, our conduct in the church, and what have you. We have to stress these things because there are some people who, unfortunately, think the church is like a social club. You know, where we go and then, you know, you know, high five and, you know, have fun and things like that. But the church is serious business because for the leaders, remember, Paul keeps reminding them that you are going to give an account before God someday, before Jesus Christ, for your stewardship for all church leaders. And that makes it serious business. 
And that is why we need to hold our leaders you know, in high honor, give them the respect they deserve, support them in every way that we can, so that their work will be easy. And that comes in when you know your responsibility as a church member. Unfortunately, we live at a time where we call church membership, we call some people inactive members. The early church never knew anything about inactive members. You have to be an active member of the church. If you read Acts, they, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They prayed together. They were you know, doing everything together. You know, that kind of thing. There's nothing like there was an inactive member somewhere. No. So that's causing that it tells us that we need to re-examine our commitment to the church. If we believe that the church is up there above everything, then it demands that you know we give it our all. You know, and that is how we see these letters. So these letters are not kind of ideas being thrown out there, no, 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 no. This is a group of people who are going to stand before Christ and give an account for every single one of us. And that is how we see these letters, alright? So, uh, this is the background. So for the chapters uh, of our first Timothy, we have about six chapters. We have the uh, chapter one, uh, Brother Christ uh, spent some time talking about the first chapter uh, on doctrine, on the word of God, on the gospel. Okay? And he did quite a good job. And then in chapter two, he continued with the worship a prayer life of the church. It says, pray for uh, the kings and queens. I mean, kings. Uh, pray for <laughs> pray for the kings. Then pray for everybody. Okay. And then he spoke about the conduct of women and the place of women in the church. Well, we discussed the, what the role of women should be. And we spoke among other things that women have a very vital role to play in the church, even though they are not supposed to lead the church. They can do so many things behind the scenes. And one of the things that I remember we stressed on, or Brother Chris stressed on, was how women can influence that their children in the faith, like we see in the case of Lois and Eunice. All right, Timothy's father, to all intents and purposes, had passed years before, but the mother and the grandmother were able to raise Timothy so that he became a giant in the face. Now imagine a 20-year-old man leading this big church in Ephesus with all the idolatry and all of that. Mm -hmm. you know? Today, can we trust a 20-year-old pastor with that kind of responsibility? It should be possible. All right? So, uh, that was chapter 2. And the last week, Lord, we, uh, we started with chapter 3. And in just 16 verses, we looked at the first six verses, basically. So we are going to start from chapter, verse 7, and then we'll continue to verse number uh, 16. Uh, today we'll go a little faster, I hope. Uh, but it's all about the character of church leadership. The character of church leadership. And as we go through the chapter, okay, you can see that... Paul spends time discussing 
the character of the church leadership, what they should be. But he doesn't talk about their duties necessarily. Now, why do you think he doesn't spend time talking about the duties and the character of both the pastors? I remember we said last week, pastors, overseers, bishops, the same. Okay, when you read the New Testament, these terms are used interchangeably. Bishops, overseers, pastors, same word. And then we have down deacons. So these two offices are what is recognized in the New Testament. Right, so why do you think generally that Paul spends time talking about the character and not their duties and responsibilities? Why do you think that is so? Because the character leads a person. I mean, anyone can carry out a duty, but you need to have that character to, to be a, an, an officer of the church. A deacon would be an officer. Of the okay, I'll, I'll give you seven over ten. Okay. You are close. I want you to hit the bull's eye. Yes, ma'am. Even with doing the right actions, with the wrong heart isn't is still sin. Yes. And to know to do the right thing and not do it is sin. So so it all always, always God lives on the heart, man lives on the outward appearance. Man looks on the, the what the Pharisees are doing, all the you know, really but only God can see the heart and that's what he cares about. I'll give you eight point five over ten. <laughs> you did better than I did. You did better than I did. I'll give you eight point five. Somebody should give me ten. <laughs> Why does Paul spend time talking about the character rather than the duties? There is a connection. I want you to nail it. Um, I would say that it's because God loves the weak and it's not the strong. Like He opposes the proud and He loves the weak. So I think that even if you did a duty and you didn't do it great, but you had a real sincere heart, like God would honor that. Yeah. And I think if you did a duty and you did an outstanding job, but your heart was like stinky and you weren't doing it in the right motive, God wouldn't be honored by that. Yeah. You are still on the same page as <laughs> Yeah, so 8.5. Okay, uh, let's start with yes. I'll go with lead by data, lead by example. Uh -huh. How they live, uh -huh. not just their knowledge of the word because the devil has that. Okay. There, people can see your life. Okay. And they will accuse you of being a Christian because of the way you Yeah, in fact, we'll look at verse 7 shortly because verse 7 says you should be concerned about outsiders. How outsiders picture the church. But that's not the answer I'm looking for. But okay, you're right. Too. Yes, you're right. Yes, ma'am. I think Christy deserves at least a nine. And <laughs> <laughs> okay. pointed out that in the okay. case of using somebody weak, yes. God gets the glory. Yes. So that's a big part of it. So yes. she did that. Okay, we agree. All right. But I want you to see the connection. Who can nail it for me? Yes, uh, Benjamin. The duties flow out of the character. Thank you. Thank you. I'll give you 10 out of 10. <laughs> All right. You are. Okay. What you, you see, what we are determines how, what we do in the church. And that is why our aim as a church should be to preach the gospel so that our hearts can be what? Changed. And when a person is living in constant communion with God, it becomes easy for the person to serve in the church. Are you getting the picture, the connection? Yeah. So Paul spends time to talk about Christian character. So we are what we are determines how we serve. 
You got that picture. Yes, ma'am. I heard you're trying to imagine a 20 year old leading a church. Yes. How about a teenager? A teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Be ready to leave the church. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, years ago, uh, when I was around 12, 13, my first pastor, we found when our, start, our church in Ghana started, we used to meet in a small classroom like that. Almost like maybe three quarters of this room. And he, the pastor wanted the church to grow. And in Ghana, everybody goes to one church or the other. How do you get people in? And this man said, we are going to start with children's ministry. And he started training the very committed people. He said, let's get our Sunday school organized in a very unique way. And let's go to the homes. And God being so good, that was around the time that I started going to Sunday school. And then just about six months later, they brought in a one. And so the church was having Saturdays, Awana meetings, Sundays, Sunday school. Very intense, very committed leadership, teachers. And guess what? Today, after so many years, that investment in young people is what is keeping my church. Today. If you go to my local church in Ghana, my age group, then those who come after me like three, four, five years, you almost have like every generation. People go out because of, I mean, work and other things, but you always have like 10 out of every team who are still committed to the church. And guess what? In the local church in, my, in Ghana, who are the Sunday school teachers? Those children who years ago, were invested in dating the Sunday school. Who are the choristers? Those children who were invested in, they are the choristers. Who are the ushers? Those children who were invested in 20 years ago, they are. Who are the deacons? Those children who were invested in. Now my, my first pastor, he moved out of the church. He started other churches. But when I had conversations with him, he said, Bennett, children's ministry is difficult. But it has huge dividends. As for the older people, every now and then you get one or two people coming in. But if you want to really have a backbone of the church, you need to invest in children's ministry. But usually some pastors say, oh, the children, it's the children's, no, no. If Timothy is an example, then we need to take children's ministry more seriously than we've done. So this is just an example of what Christian ministry can do. But Let's move on. Look at, uh, let's read the text, please. Uh, let's have a reader read for us. First Timothy 3, 1 to 15. Uh, a good reader should kindly read for us. Okay. <clears throat> one, and you said verses 1 through 15? Yes, please. 1 through 16. Okay. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
he must manage his own household well, with all, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. This, I mean, I was just blown away when I tried to make sense of what Paul has written here. And I hope that I can be able to communicate that even as we look at the text. But uh, look at verse number 15. Paul says, if I delay, you may know how you one ought to be Hey, in the house of, household of God, which is the church of the living God. This is the verse which captures the essence of the whole book, verse, 10, verse number 15. If I delay, he says, I'm coming, but if I delay, I want you to even before implement, start implementing this before I even get there. Alright, how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. We'll look at these terms uh, shortly. But Paul's burden was to give instruction regarding how to confront false living, false teachers, okay, and to restore the stability of the church. You see? So, uh, let me ask you, uh, just to wrap up for our discussion last week on the office of the elder, eldership, I mean the pastorate, okay? Look at verse number seven. Okay. It says, how we, uh, the pastor should conduct himself on the outside. Why do you think a pastor's conduct on the outside is so important? It reflects on the church. It reflects on the church. He's a representative of God. He represents the flock. And if you're if he's up there preaching something and then practically living in a different kind of way, he looks like a hypocrite. Yes. All right. Do you know that, or do you realize that people know your church by your pastor? 
Okay, people usually associate. I mean, the the the, the nature of leadership that you have. When the people meet them, that's how they, they get to know the church. You alright? So, it tells us that we need to really hold high. I think, I think last week I said it here. God has blessed us with a very good pastor. And I tell you, very good. We are blessed. Because I've never seen a more open pastor like Pastor Tim. Because he let, I mean, you can tell from Monday to Saturday where Pastor Tim is at any point in time, which is a great thing because he just opens his life to the church. And you can see how, even when he's away, he's telling us every week what he's doing so that somebody doesn't start, oh, the pastor has, you know, and that kind of thing. And that's a sign. A pastor who is hiding things here and there, there's something. Suspicion, you see. Anyway. So, how will it? It's not just for the pastor, but people should know our church by the kind of lives we live, wherever we find ourselves. So, you can be a deacon, a pastor, in the, an angelic pastor or deacon in the church, but a demon at home. I, I came across an expression on social media. I don't know what it means, but it's an American expression. They say, uh, when they say somebody is a caring, uh, I mean, caring, America's caring, or somebody, <laughs> I guess what it was. If somebody is a caring, they say, does somebody go by that name? I hope not. Uh, if somebody is a caring, what does it mean? It means that the person makes troubles for the neighbors and things like that. Mm -hmm. That female name, K-E-R-E-N or something like that. I just, just came across it recently. A Christian cannot be a caring, <laughs> all right? When you are making trouble with your neighbors, and, no. Rather, your conduct should rather bring people into the church. Years ago, like I was saying, I, 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 because of my association with children's ministry, all my examples, uh, we had um, uh, one lady who was coming to our uh, our church, young lady, she was like 16, 17, and on the street there were other younger children from a, another uh, family that we tried to bring into the church. I, and I used to work with one of the uh, women who lived in there. She met me and said, Bennett, you know what? The lady's name was Pearl. She said, Bennett, I've seen how Pearl lives, how she conducts herself how she dresses as a young woman. And she said, I want my niece to be like her when she's of that age. And because of that, I'm going to bring her to your Sunday school. What a blessing it was. So it was easy for us. Usually for our ministry, we go knocking on doors every Saturday. That's what I used to do. We don't do phone calls, no, we walk. And I sit down in the hall, you know, that kind of, that's how we bring people in. So when we go home to visit the homes, some homes, they welcome you, other places, you know, they don't have time for you. But we always succeed in getting the children. And when you get the children, the parents will follow. So this was one testimony. He said, I want my, my niece to be like her. And he was such a yes, parent. Um, I see. Even even in this church, I don't picture myself being. Oh, I'm still 20, in my twenties, I think. Until one of the kids passes me in the hallway and says, "Hi, Mr. Holland." 
or I knew that was Mr. Hall, or you know, uh, okay, maybe maybe I am up there. But there's people I look forward to in their character, and I want to be like them. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully, in my wanting to be like that person, that's I'll say older me because I'm not using any names. But if I want to be like them, then hopefully me being like them will conduct to someone else wanting to to you know be like me. I, mean, I don't want to make that sound conceited or anything, but there's a a, a chain there. And I tell you, I'm sure you can bear even with your people are watching. Mm -hmm. People are always watching, and that's why Peter says that being a bit poor. Being surrounded by, by, by so great a cloud of witnesses, what do we do? We have to what? live according to how God expects us to live. All right. The world is looking for authenticity, and we ought to be in a position to do that. So uh, we spoke about the pastor's um, fidelity in marriage. We spoke about a one-woman man should be committed to one woman. We spoke about his sober-mindedness self-controlled, uh, respectable, his hospitality, we spoke about his teaching ability, his drinking habits, he shouldn't be an alcoholic, um, his temperament and temper, not a violent person, but gentle, not quarrelsome. We spoke about his attitude to money, okay? <laughs> I heard a story recently where, you know, during the pandemic, um, churches were just uh, out there, you know, the internet, Facebook, you know, YouTube, like this. So somebody saw a church in Africa and said, uh, I love the way you people are passionate about the gospel, so I'm going to support you. And then the pastor of that church did what? He informed the elders and said, oh, this person has promised to send some money for us to run ministry. So after a while, the Elders, I said, oh, you told us some money was going to come in. We haven't heard anything. And then he said, oh, the money came in, but I used it to buy land. Are you getting the picture? The money has come in, but he hasn't informed the other elders. And he has used it to acquire land for himself. And he, until he was asked, he wasn't even telling That's a sign that the money, you know, money, money. There's also something about the whole outline of, of the conduct of an elder. When you have, and we've talked about having a plurality of elders mm -hmm. and how that's a, a godly biblical way to have it, they are to be of one mind. And so they, if you have that outline, and they all are not lovers of wine and not lovers of money, then they should all be able to think the same way. Yeah. You know, whether you have two yeah. or six. Yeah. And ideally, there should be transparency. Mm -hmm. Since I've been here at a business meeting, everything is laid bare. If you have concerns, speak out. If you have to challenge, challenge this openly. If you want to see the pastor about something or this, the, the channels are there, you know? That is how good things should be done, you see? So when you see things like that happen, and I tell you, if you go to Africa, 
especially with these charismatic churches, there's no accountability. There's no accountability. As I speak, there's one church in Ghana that is in court because of how they dealt with their pastors. You see? And it's always the bishop dangling the apple or carrot before the, the eyes of the convict. And then he takes a bigger bite and leaves the that's how it is. Yes, ma'am. As far as I know, our pastor doesn't even have any idea who gives what. Mm -hmm. So there can be no favoritism, mm -hmm. no, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. privileges or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he prefers it that way. Yes. I think it's a good idea. Yes. But when you see a, 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 a leader of a church who is into money, mm -hmm. you can always tell. See, the eyes, you know. <laughs> All right, so. We, we want to conclude with that. Let's move on quickly to the deacons. Now, he uses the term likewise. What is he trying to intimate here? Likewise. The elders should be like the, like the elder, or like the elders. Like yes. <clears throat> deacons should also be like the elders. You see, the way, so all the things he's listed should be seen uh, amongst the Deacons. So it tells us that that process of getting people into that position should be taken seriously. It shouldn't be taken lightly at all. All right. Remember, if he says likewise, then he says that anyone who aspires to that office is a good thing. But remember, like we saw last week, it is the Holy Spirit of God who superintends over that process. Now remember, like I said earlier, whatever position you are in, you are going to stand before Christ and account for that stewardship. And that is why these things are very, very important. Alright, so let's quickly look at the list of deacons. And I want you to tell me, which ones are tying with the eldership office? And which I think the deacons one is about four, but the pastors one is about ten. Okay, so I want you to uh, draw out the similarities and the differences. Which one is in among the deacons and is not? Uh, which one have we have in the pastors list, but we don't have in the deacons list? Yes, and which are the same, which are different. Managing your household well. Managing your household well should run for both, right? So a deacon should be able to run his house well. The pastor should be able to run his house. Control the house, control the children. Says if you can't manage your house well, how can you manage your church? The deacon's description doesn't include teaching. It doesn't include teaching, all right? But a deacon should be able to teach. In some churches, in fact, when the pastor is away, it's the deacons who step into the pulpit to, to, to take the terms to, to, to teach. So a deacon should have the ability because he tells us that he should hold the faith, all right, with a good conscience. So it means that the deacon should be familiar with the fundamentals of the gospel, fundamentals of the faith in good conscience. So you can't put a deacon into office who doesn't know his left from the right concerning the faith. So every deacon is assumed should be, have a full grasp 
of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Why? Because you are going to be dealing with the members of the church. Deacons should be said that the membership of the church should be able to come to a deacon and say, oh, I read this scripture. I'm struggling with how to apply it in my life. Can you give me some insight? All right. And it's assumed that a deacon should be somebody who is well-versed in scripture and should be able to explain some of these things to the ordinary members. All right. So this is serious business. Okay. I hope that I've not scared you with it. <laughs> All right. But if you are a young person here, it doesn't matter. You should, once you are faithful, available, and teachable, you can aspire to that office. But it's serious business, as you can see. All right. What, what else? What else is significant to the qualifications of the deacon? Anything that stands out to you? Not addicted to wine. Not I mean, he uses different words, but it's the same. Either yes. a drunkard or addicted to wine is the same thing. You know, let me give you something. When I came to America and I started, uh, you know, when I was in California, there was a Trader Joe's. Uh, where I was, Walmart was far away, so I used to go to Trader Joe's. And then when I came here, I think Walmart is closer to me. And I, as I walked through Walmart, I see where the wine, the alcohol, opinion displayed. And they position that place in a very strategic place. You watch it. Where the alcohol is, is strategically positioned. So that if you are somebody who is addicted to things like that, you know, you, you see it and then your, your palate starts, you know. And you look at it and it's assorted, all kinds, 10%, 5%, 20%, 50%, and it goes all the way. Alright, I'm saying this because my father was a heavy alcoholic. And I saw before my own eyes how alcohol eventually destroyed him. You know, so I've seen how, in fact, when I was growing up, Guess what? He was a, a customs officer. He used to be in the preventive service, so they used to move him around there. One time he was somebody who likes a call and he's working at the brewery. And guess what? Every time he comes home, he comes with alcohol. Free. There was a, a time came where we had a whole room full of beer bottles. I, so I started testing alcohol around 10, 11, 12 years. And then I came to find, I mean, the Lord, <laughs> I mean, discovered me. And I said, no. So my uncles look at me, Mr. Bennett, I don't know what happened, but I'm so thankful that you didn't take after your dad. And I said, brother, sir, it's because of grace. Because in my house, I mean, if you are, if you know a customs officer, they, they, when people give gifts, they give you alcohol. So it's not just beer, I mean, name it. Vodka, this, that, that. And my dad had them under his bed, in the wardrobe, all over the house. So if you are somebody who is into that, I mean, oh, yeah. And my dad was sad that anytime you go to the bar, you have to go to the bar. That was his recreation. And I tell you, eventually, 
the alcohol, I don't want to be graphic, it destroyed his internal organs. Then to his old, he had to be in pampas. Excuse me to say, I don't want to. <laughs> but I'm, I want to be graphic so that if you are somebody who is, you know, you are, you are, you are, you are being tempted, alcohol is, 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 is a destroyer. If you are a young man, it can destroy you. Alright? So, very significant that Paul mentions it, even in the first century. Now, it's in very assorted modes. And some, I know that some people take a wine, wine, they are okay. I, when I was in California, some of my best friends, uh, they just take a glass of wine, they are okay. They are regular, well, good Christians, and all of that. But if you know that you have a problem, if you can say no at all, don't go near it, all right? Good. So, Paul mentioned these things. And then, uh, let's move on to, I want us to spend time on verse number uh, 15 and 16, all right? 15 and 16, but let's start off with 14. Will somebody read the 14 for us again? 14. First Timothy 3, 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I write with hopes to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, mm -hmm. which is the church of the living God, yeah. the pillar and buttress of the truth. If you look at the, the, your uh, sheet, okay, uh, I list the three things about the church. How Paul says we should view the church. What are those three things? According to verse number uh, 14 and 15. I think I put it there. God's household. God's household. Uh -huh. the, church of the, God. the church of the living God. The pillar, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. These are very significant terms. I want you us to discuss the household of God. How significant is that? How do you understand? What does it mean to you? That the church is the household of God. What does it mean to you? Well, who stays in a household but a family? Okay. We're, a fa we're a family yeah, in this family. household. Mm -hmm. The church family. Now, we are not talking about biological family. We are talking about the spiritual family, the family of God. And it also makes me think about how the Holy, Holy Spirit inspires us. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of like the house, mm -hmm. and then we all come together. Yes. Mm -hmm. The family of God. I don't know how you view the church. But, brethren, if this is the house of God, then when the house of God is open, I should be running. Yes. I should be running. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a, he says that he feared to miss church because you never know when God is going to bring a special blessing. Amen. He feared to miss church. He feared to miss church. But here we are, and when the church doors are open, we have to drag ourselves into church. This is the family of God, the household of God. In fact, the, in, in the Old Testament, Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. I know in our individual homes, we, we do uh, 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 personal devotions and what have you. But I tell you, when the church meets as the family of God, something takes place. 
I was going to try to come up with who said it. I disrespect them by how I'm going to merge this quote, so I'm not going to quote it. But they said, you should adjust your schedule mm -hmm. not around what your personal life is, mm -hmm. but around church. You should make things work. Well, I can't be there because we have church Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. I can't be there, you know. And there's things, providential work or things like that, but, you know, you, they always joke, Southern Baptist, if the doors are open, you, <laughs> you need to be going through it. Look at what David says. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God mm -hmm. than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there you go. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. All right, then some, uh, uh, what's that, Psalm, Psalm 23. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will wow. dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So even when we die, we stand before God within the world. I heard a sermon this week about <laughs> about this about what the Lord's Day is, mm -hmm. and they said it's just a crack of the door. Mm -hmm. Looking, actually, it was a sermon on Pilgrim Progress, and he was on the mountain looking to the celestial city. He, he just saw a peak of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what church is. It's just a peak yes. of what we have to come. Yes. What's the next term? Household of God. What's the next term that's used to describe the church? Paul says. The church of the living God. Usually we don't refer to God as living. Mm -hmm. But that is the, 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 the attributes that should be. God is the living God. I don't know this morning if you believe that you serve a living God. Is God living? Is God alive to you? Alright. One of our hymns says that. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living whatever men may say. I see the sound of mercy. I hear His voice of joy. Right? So lament is always He lives, he lives, he lives, he lives. That's it. That's the word. He lives. We serve the living God. The living God. And if I, this morning you are not going away with I'm just reminding you mm. that we serve a living God. Amen. Alright? Don't forget that. If you forget anything, Go home with that. We serve the living God. And if we are to give opportunity for every one of you to share God's acts in your own life, we can't live here. Because you can see that right from your breath, God has been gracious to you. Amen. Your work, your family, I mean, everything you are, everything you have, God has been good to you. That is a testimony that we serve a living God. And that should tell you that if you have burdens, you have concerns, you have cares, you still serve a living God and you can come to him. What's the third description? The pillar and foundation of the truth. What does a pillar do? Pillar. The pillar. This building has pillars, I guess. I don't see pillars here. 
uh, construction people, what does a pillar do? A pillar supports. A pillar lifts up. If you want to get a picture of a pillar, when something stood in the house of the uh, Philistines and he couldn't see, he said somebody should leave him. And then he, he stood between the pillars that held, you know, and then he prayed that simple prayer. And those pillars gave way. And what happened? Something killed people on that day than all his life. Pillar, that is a picture. So the pillar of truth, it means that the church has the truth. It's not a truth, the truth. Remember when Christ stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him, what is truth? What is truth? Christ didn't answer him directly, but he was telling him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Pilate should have reconsidered because previously his wife had gone to bed and God was sending a message to him that that man who is going to come before you is not ordinary. There are some people who dismiss certain things that God was revealing himself to Pilate but he couldn't say. That is why we say that, you know, salvation it is God who takes away the veil from our eyes so that we can acknowledge the truth. So that should be our prayer for those who do not know. So the church, okay, doesn't just uphold it. We have to lift it high so that people can see. All right? So I don't know how people view you in your family, in your workplace. Do people see, at least there should be something distinctive about you. Something. Something, oh, something. Oh, this man, this woman, is, there's something about him. You see, that shows that the light of God, the grace of God, is shining in your heart. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Do you think the, the way you usually speak in terms, he's not strictly speaking about the synagogue or temple or something? Yeah. Like, no, we're not strictly talking about building or meeting, but. Right? Yes, in fact, uh, we, we remember I said the context is Ephesus. And in that Grecian world, remember the Temple of Diana? and all that architecture, if you know Greek, okay, Paul was using those terms, that analogy, to, to, to describe how the church should be. You know, like uh, the, uh, the picture of uh, Ephesians 6, the, the armor of God, okay? Paul uses a Roman soldier's this description to describe uh, the Christian armor. Uh, and the reason I, I guess I bring that up is just we look at mm-hmm. ourselves collectively mm-hmm. as God's household, not just like, I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced it though, when growing up, people would say things like oh, I don't want to say that in church, or I don't want to you know, I'm not going to wear that in church, but no, we're, we're the household of God, we're the pillar of truth mm-hmm. at all times, and yeah. that God, out the way we live, not just, you know, like on church on Sunday, yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Alright, so these are very significant terms, and please be reminded, the household of God the pillar of truth and then the church of the living God. These are very, very significant things, okay? And I hope you get the implication. Let's end with the grand verse of everything. Verse number 16. So, 
Paul is answering the question, what is truth? And he answered that in verse number 16. Will somebody read it for us? In fact, this is a verse that we quote during our morning uh, worship sometimes, very often. 1 Timothy 3.16. Will somebody read it for us? This is the grandest thing. Till the grand best thing. I love me hymns. Sometimes I get so carried away. Yes. Verse 16. Somebody should please read this for us. Great indeed. We confess yes. is the mystery of God. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, and seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and up in the world. Amen. You know, this is the story of Christmas right there. This is the story of Christianity right there. What is the truth? That God came down in the person of Christ so that he could do what? Draw us back into fellowship with him. John 1 14, what does it say? John 1 14, who can quote it? The word became flesh and God's mind. Amen. And the word became flesh. Paul says, God manifested himself in the flesh. Are you getting the picture? So Christianity is not man reaching out. No, it is God coming down. And that makes Christianity distinct from every other religion. And that is why you can see that Islam is false. Buddhism is false. Zoroastrianism is false. Charismatism is false. All the isms are false. And this is what the truth. And for Paul, he was just excited when that revelation came to pass. He said he always uses the term mystery. But now it's not a mystery, it is what revealed. So the reformers use the term revealed truth, revealed faith. So Christianity is not hidden or mystery or mysterious. No. It's mysterious in a sense that, all right, God mysteriously changes our hearts. All right. He says the wind blows. You can't see the wind, but you can feel. That is how a person who is born of God. That is the mysterious aspect of it. You get the picture. So there is some mysterious nature about conversion. But believe it, as far as the word is concerned, there is no mystery. And without controversy, without controversy, the ESV says, we confess. So these are facts. I used to have a book titled, The World's Greatest Truths. And it's all about the gospel. Because the gospel tells you where you came from and how you should live your life. And where your destiny is. All right? Any closing comments? What do you take away this morning? Yeah, just that outside the Trinity, God loves the church the most. So if He loves the church that much, He should. Yes, amen. He should. I don't know how. When you travel, do you go to church? When you're on vacation, do you go to church? Do you miss something when you haven't been to church for a week, two, three? And for me, more importantly, do you take the prayer meeting seriously? If you want things to be done in your life, you should take the powerhouse 
The prayer meeting, that is the powerhouse of the church. That's when Sunday mornings, I, uh, my pastor in Ghana is, Sunday morning, he doesn't really trust the congregation. When you want to see people, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you see, other meetings, you can tell. So, I'm, I'm a young man, I think. <laughs> but I can tell you, you know, this faith we are talking about, you need to experience it to believe it. So that now, when you read, it's not just what happened to Daniel, or David, or Joseph, or Mary. It's what happened to you. You, you. You should be able to testify. What has happened to you? You should be able to share that. I have a close with this. I have a, a half-sister who has been on my nerves since God knows. Every time she's taken up a fight over mundane things. But guess what? She came to my workplace one time, anonymously. And then she said, I'm looking for uh, Bennett. And then, oh, Osofu, I mean, the pastor. You mean the pastor? <laughs> My sister was shocked. Ah, so they called me pastor in the workplace. You know? And she said, I, as she was speaking to me, she had tears in her eyes. She said, Bennett, I know that God is with you. And it shocked me. You know? And that is what people should testify about you. If you are a spouse, your spouse should be able to tell you. Sister, brother, whatever. I know God is with you. Any more comments we have there? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is, O oh God, even to look at your word. Father, we know that the gospel is truth. Christ is the truth. And Father, your desire is that all of us here, O oh God, will come to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, open our eyes. Strengthen our work with you. Help us, O oh God, even to have testimonies. And remind us, O oh God, every day that we serve a living God. We praise you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you.